to jump in again, if I may. Please. Um, what another intriguing idea, I mean, there's been a lot of sci-fi films and done really, really well, and you hope to add something different or in addition to the genre instead of repeating. When James, another thing he hooked me with when he first, when he first started talking about this was he, um, he called on a quote that was attributed to Arthur Clarke, which said, I'm going to get it wrong so you can correct me, um, basically said, we're either not alone in the universe or we are completely and utterly alone. And either idea is equally frightening. And it, it, I can't think of any other film that actually, you know, we're usually dealing with either benevolent aliens who are going to impart some wisdom or some are going to destroy us and we have to stand up and fight. But this idea, this question of what if we are actually alone, um, at least in the, in, the, in the reachable universe through our lifetimes, what does that mean? And are we, are we missing something uh, between us? Yeah. That's true. No, that is true. We did try, we were trying to, to find new, ground, new territory, and we were. I mean, I, you know, we can talk about Apocalypse Now or Kubrick or whatever, but that is certainly the governing principle was, okay, we're going to make the first movie that, that might pose that question. Because it, it, to Brad's point, benevolent aliens or bad aliens, it's still an idea, in a sense, false gods, right? Kubrick beats the trap brilliantly. He's got these astronauts, they find us black slab on the moon that looks like some 60s minimalist sculpture. And you can project anything you want on it. Oh, there's good aliens, bad, I don't know what they are. It's just a black monolith floating around. E.T. E beats the trap because he pitches it like a fable. So it's, it, I don't think you watch E.T. wanting a, a disquisition on alien life. You know, you, it's a, really what it is, is it's a lonely kid and dealing with a divorce. It's, that's really what it is, metaphor. Exactly. So um, we thought, no false gods. Right. No one's going to save us. No little green man's going to help us out of climate change or anything like that. No, no bad alien's going to come and unify the whole planet, make us realize we're the same. Not coming. Not happening. What does that mean? Okay. Welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza. Um, well, I'm joined by uh, J. Andrew World, of course, as always, and uh, Lee Phillips, who is um, a science writer at Jacobin, um, among other things, and an author of... Uh, Two books. One that I've one that I've read and absolutely devoured and loved, which is People's Republic of Walmart. He's the co-author of that, and of um, Austerity Ecology and the uh, Collapse Porn Addicts. Um, so we are uh, we we're doing this a little bit differently tonight, I guess. Um, we don't always go into it with uh, someone having written something about the movie we're watching. So far, I don't think um, we've done that yet. So. You know, I, I asked like if, if there were sci-fi movies you wanted to watch to uh, discuss this or discuss you know sci-fi in general, and you sent me um, this this article that you wrote for Jacobin. What if we really are alone in the universe? Which is really the central question um, posed by Ad Astra, which is the movie that we watched. Um, so I guess I'll let you uh, talk about the the beginning of this um, right now and. Uh, and and really, the, the most terrifying question asked in in a sci-fi movie, I think personally, you know, what if we really are alone in the universe? Yeah. What if this is they're all? What if this is all there is? Well, so that clip that you you pulled up there, um, that's really interesting. Um, uh, I uh, 
thought that this was this what the the main theme of this film was i didn't realize that i mean i thought maybe that was my reading of it uh, but that's interesting that that they literally that's that was their idea um yeah so that quote from from arthur c clark that brad pitt um mangles there um basically the ending of the quote is that that both are equally terrifying um if we we can understand why the discovery of other intelligent life forms in the, in the universe would be terrifying because then we'd be thinking well um what are they like will they eat us will they treat us like we treat you know cows or pigs or something like that um will they come in peace um that so there's a sort of terrifying idea there um the other side um they're absolutely right there's there's almost nothing that i can think of really that's explored the other the other side of of, of the terror um other than ad astra where it it really is well what if what if it is just us um that poses an enormous ethical burden on us to to not kill ourselves and not wipe ourselves out because of course a, uni a universe with that, that is unaware of itself um there's there's no purpose to the universe we are uh, we are moral agents in a in an amoral world um if there's nothing else in the universe that is a moral agent we are the only moral agents in the world and doing um, a banger it, job of it <laughs> <laughs> well I, I you know i'm more humanist i'm more optimistic than i think a lot of people but um um, it, it, it places this enormous burden on us not to screw things up with climate change and wipe us out. That um, I mean, this goes along with the sort of line, you know, from Stephen Jay Gould, the uh, the paleontologist, the late paleontologist, and 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 socialist, and he made this argument, which I think I find very compelling, which is uh, that the you know life on Earth is incredibly robust; it's not fragile at all. We're not in the business of saving the planet when we're talking about climate change. Or biodiversity loss what we're talking about is saving ourselves we are what's fragile mm -hmm. we're the special thing we're quite exceptional um yeah so i think that's the 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 uh the terror that they're they're talking about that and it's profoundly important in the current moment uh given the the, you know, the state of the planet with respect to climate change and biodiversity loss but also from a technical point of view in that um this isn't just a an interesting philosophical speculation. We are at a very, very interesting point um, scientifically where within the next four or five years, we will have, you know, the next generation of, of long range uh, sort of deep space satellites, uh, which will be able to um, sort of assess the, um, uh, the, the sort of whether there are biosignatures in the atmospheres of exoplanets. We already have about, you know, I think it's on the order of about 4,000 exoplanets that we've discovered, but we mainly discovered them through sort of um, transit in front of their, their suns. Um, uh, when there's a dip in the, uh, the, the light that comes from that, that star, we, we know that there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a planet there and we can use that information to assess its size and so on and so forth. But what we can't do, or we haven't been able to do very, very well other than some extremely close um, exoplanets, and I think it's a, just a handful, we can't directly observe it. And the next generation of, of, of satellites will be able to directly observe these, these planets, these exoplanets, and as a result of that, assess what's in their atmosphere. And from the, the sort of um, 
the light signatures from the, the, uh, the chemicals in the atmosphere, we're able to, we should be able to assess um, whether there is life or not, or rather put it another way, there are certain chemicals that it is um, much more likely that at certain volumes, um, life creates rather than um, non-life. And as a result of that, and I'll wrap up in a second, um, we should be able to uh, map quite large areas of the, uh, of the galaxy uh, that way, which then gives us a sort of statistical assessment of how many, how, how frequent um, these, these, these biosignatures are on other planets. And if it's one in every 4,000 um, um, exoplanets, um, then we've got a good sense of like how common life is. But if we find nothing at all, um, that that's that tells us that we are the only um, life, uh, at least in the galaxy, um, because statistically, uh, even though we can't map the entirety of the galaxy, statistically that should tell us um, how common life is. Five, ten years or so, we we, we should, in principle, have uh, a sense of how how likely life is on other other worlds, which is very scary. Yeah. And amazing at the same time. Yeah. And and um what I guess my question um about this is, you know, there's kind of like the the Goldilocks planet theory that, you know, like we're we're always looking for livable planets, I guess. Um, Goldilocks zone, yes. Yeah. So what what uh what factors I guess more exactly make up that um that concept? Like what what makes a planet, I guess, technically livable or technically able to house life like life? One of the primary things is you want a temperature range where you have um uh, liquid water, because liquid water is just so um, essential for so many different uh, life processes, or rather, processes for life as we know it. Yeah, that's the sort. So you, you um, too hot, um, you you won't have um, uh, liquid water. Too cold, all the water's frozen. But having said that, um, that doesn't necessarily mean a particular distance from the sun. Um, sort of Goldilocks zone, although we have historically thought about that. More recently, we've sort of, um, well, not recently, it's been a while since we've sort of assessed these sort of possibilities, but uh, you could be farther away from the sun so that all water on the surface of a, of a world is, is frozen. But if there's water inside, it might, or, um, uh, it might continue to be liquid if it's heated by the um, uh, so the radiation core? from the, uh, the the core or or mantle of the um, that planet. Um. So I. So we're so we're looking right now at, at you know the entire universe. Sorry, I, there are uh, lots of other aspects, but that's yeah. the main ones. Yeah. No, I, I was just I was just curious. There was like I I knew about the the temperature range part of it. I I was just I was curious if there was parts of it I didn't really um it, the, like I don't know because you know there's just a lot of times there's so many factors that are so in depth. And, um, on the well, yeah, no, this is a really good point because on the other end of uh, the other end of this, the other, another part of the discussion, um, um, for a long time we would, have, and we still do. Like, if you take a, a biology, uh, an undergraduate biology course, you're going to be learning that there are certain limits, um, at, uh, but not just in terms of temperature, but acidity. Uh, level of radioactivity or alkalinity, uh, pressure, uh, there's a range of other conditions which are at the edges of which 
and sort of extreme versions of this and uh, life is ruled out. The problem is that um, within microbiology, uh, there's been a raft of discoveries in the last uh, couple of decades where uh, we go to some sort of ecosystem which is extraordinarily salty or extraordinarily acidic or extraordinarily radioactive or the vacuum of space or um, like in incredible pressures where we had historically assumed there is no uh, possible way that life can be there. We go there and we find extreme files. Um, and uh, researchers, for the most part, you will still, people will uh, still assert that there are, there are limits, but there are researchers who, will be in who are beginning to say that there might not be limits. I mean, it's certainly the, the biodiversity in those, in those conditions is extremely low um but we're wondering whether is there any part where uh we ab find absolutely nothing yeah and that's that's kind of interesting because that's actually much more optimistic that suggests that um life is should be almost everywhere uh just a very where in these sort of extreme conditions it would be extremely extremely low um but that it might might just be everywhere that biology is just a um um a consequence of chemistry and and kind of i think um you know like i don't remember if we were uh recording yet when when andy made this joke about the tardigrades um tardigrades like yes tardigrades yeah sorry um that like but Water that kind of, yeah <laughs> but but like you know the fact that they can kind of survive in in these you know uh, low oxygen conditions it, it kind of says that like maybe maybe not maybe there's certain uh, things that intelligent life can't develop, but then you think about it and like, what is intelligence? What is life? Um, like, you know what I mean? Like the, 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 these factors I think start to go away um, a little bit, or you can theorize that these factors start to go away because of, you know, the enormous amount of life that survived here in different conditions. And we're kind of only judging it by what's, what we can prove survived here. Like I just, I could yeah. see like a, an incredibly, optimistic person saying like, well, how do we know that those are the same conditions that, um, you know, like, like anywhere else, like it's kind of an, an endless theory yeah. because there's an endless amount of possibilities. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, uh, a that's, size of one. The earth is our only, yeah. Only data point. And and that's, that's within, but as I say, in the next couple of years, a couple of five to 10 years, we will have many more data points. Yeah. All right. So that's, that's really interesting. That point is coming up uh, pretty fast considering I think how fast, how, how big the gap is sometimes between, uh, you know, like space discovery. I feel like we find out something and then it's like 10 years before or 20 years or, you know what I mean? Like it, it takes a long time. Cause I mean, when you really think about where we've actually been able to go, it's just really the moon. Like, and, and it's been, Oh no, no. I mean, it depends what you mean by we, um, like in terms of manned space exploration. Yes. The moon is the only place. Yeah. I mean, talking I mean, about where humanity has gone as a whole through robotic exploration. We've gone beyond the edge of the uh, the solar system. We've, no, I, I uh, meant I meant like past like, the, the heliosphere. Yeah, I meant man physically walking on on a on a space or you know visiting a space. Um, right. No, no pun intended, I guess. <laughs> um, um, so another thing that you go into into in this article is uh, the loneliness of space capitalism, and right. um, I I think it's fascinating that this movie kind of. Uh, which is something that, you know, I kind of made the theory, like I, I messaged both of you earlier about the theory that this is kind of like to uh, Kubrick movies, especially 2001, 
what uh, what the Joker was to Scorsese movies. Like it, it's kind of a, an ongoing homage, oh, like homage throughout the entire uh, like like two hours to a series of different movies. But like I think two thousand one, A Space Odyssey is the one that most um, that most reflects that, and you can see that in in the fact that they really did use the Arthur C. Clarke uh, quote when they're talking about where, where they came up with the idea, who, you know, is yeah. the co-writer of, among, you know, numerous other science fiction uh, works. But, you know, he was chosen as the co-writer of um, of 2001. And on top of that, um, when I was watching interviews with uh, with James Gray last night, who's the director of this, he said a very similar, um, a very similar point uh, to what Arthur C. Clarke had said, uh, which is that, or a very similar goal, I guess. The, the goal of this movie was to be the most accurate, um, space exploration movie ever conceived and uh that's the same thing that that kubrick and uh, arthur c clark put out as their goal when they first made 2001 um so <laughs> i guess the, the space capitalism point i wanted to compare the uh, scenes from the two movies that are like very 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 similar scenes doing doing i think exactly the same thing and uh so i thought this would be a good place to set it up from we remind you the moon is borderless Many mining zones are disputed territory and considered to be in a state of war. Please stay within the restricted safe area. Excuse me. May I have the blanket and pillow back, please? Sure. we ever had for space travel covered up by drink stands and t-shirt vendors just a recreation of what we're running from on earth we're world eaters if my dad could see this now he'd tear it all down Yeah, so I think that you know, in 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 both of those cases, um, not only not only obviously is there still is there the you know the assumption that in this new um, space exploration age there will still be the same like you know companies and, and corporate branding everywhere, um, but on top of that, the, the, it's very mundane. Like space yeah. travel, all of a sudden, is not something that's seen as like this this great star projecting like thing that uh, really is like. Um, I don't know, just, just really majestic uh, scientific exploration. I mean, in both cases it is, but at the same time, it's also like this very mundane, almost like plane travel uh, situation. I actually kind of got a big uh, Outland vibe, which uh, is a fantastic movie. Sean Connery uh, came out in the early 80s. Uh, a lot of people compare it to Alien, but without the Alien, uh, if, if you've never seen it before. It's uh, basically a Western set on the frontier of space where there's a mining colony and Sean Connery has to basically investigate drug dealers. It's, it's a fantastic movie. Uh, and it just happens to be set in space. I mean, that, that's really the big thing, but, but a lot of this space capitalism idea 
isn't new. It's just the, new the way it's presented because in 1982, I want to say, whenever Outland came out, um, you know, uh, we didn't have the, the same kind of branding or, or brand recognition as we started to get towards the end of the 80s into the 90s, uh, which, which you know, led to Naomi Klein's first book, if you've ever read that. Uh, was it No Labels, I think? No Logo, yes. No Logo, and that's I it. I don't like the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but but the thing is though is that that idea came up from the uh, intense branding that you saw there on the moon, whereas Outland, which you know came out you know uh, basically at the beginning of the eighties, before that kind of branding really was uh, as commonplace. It was it was there, but not you know not not to the same degree, um, and, and uh, so you didn't necessarily see like a shopping mall uh, there, even though they could have easily have done that. It. it uh, would have actually linked very well to the, to the film if you've ever actually seen that. And I kind of, I said to Forrest, uh, well, uh, you know, the reason why I bring up Outland is I didn't feel that this was a, a uh, nod to 2001. Um, there, there was, there was, a, there wasn't the dancing of the, uh, of the, uh, of the spaceships like, like uh, Kubrick did. And that's the first thing I think of whenever I think of 2001, I was thinking uh, more of Outland, uh, you know, with that, with that gritty realism, not quite as that, that lived in dirty you know but that's that's a whole other movie but yeah i think that yeah point is very well taken there uh i was actually kind of surprised actually um I, it's been years since i've seen uh 2001 i was actually quite surprised uh by the the presence there of the uh, howard johnson's uh the hojo logo there um <laughs> because um so much of 2001 is sort of extra capitalism like beyond it and yeah. not quite in the same way that say star trek was um where you know star trek exists in a universe where um uh, or certainly with on earth um and within the federation um capitalism has been transcended um everybody just does things because it's in you know they're interested in doing it um and uh i'll I, I tend to think that a lot of the, the sort of the gritty capitalist realism um, or yeah, gritty realism of the representation of capitalism in, in films like, um, like this or the expanse or um, even, you know, Blade Runner, which is also, I think it was 1980, 81. Yeah, I think um, that was 82 as well. If 82? I correctly. Okay. All of these exist within the post um, uh, sort of the neoliberal era. Like after the uh, uh, the you know what the French call the trente glorieuses, thirty glorious years of the welfare state, the post-war sort of social democratic consensus, um, which is you know primarily well not primarily but very very much state driven. There's very large public sector, strong trade unions. We, we you know the three of us all know the the story there. Um, and two thousand one is set with or like or rather made not set but made within that period. Um, so I would have expected. That's why I find the Howard Johnson thing to be so surprising there that it's already sort of within um, this vision of, of space, that it is um, commodified, uh, capitalized. Um, uh, and part of this, I think, basically comes down to the fact that, you know, the, the, the world historic defeat of working people and our, and our organizations, particularly the trade unions in the late 70s, early 80s, as a result of the neoliberal revolution, um, creates you know, what the philosopher Mark, Mark Fisher calls capitalist realism, not merely that we can't, um, we've resigned ourselves to capitalism as there being no other way, uh, but we can't even conceive of there being anything beyond capitalism. And that capitalist realism thus 
infuses our, our science fiction. Of course, um, uh, there would be exploitation and commodification and uh, you know, capitalist relations uh, in space. We can't imagine that there wouldn't be. Uh, a Star Trek uh, of uh, post-capitalist Star Trek couldn't be made today. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think what, what uh, at least, because I don't think Kubrick really got interviewed too much on the making of 2001, but Arthur C. Clarke was everywhere for, you know, his, yeah. his entire life, like constantly interviewed, loved being in front of the camera. So I, I was watching a couple weeks ago, we were going to do for Ben's show 2001, and then we didn't end up doing it. But I was watching that and I watched the making of documentary and he was talking about the writing process. They imagined that, uh, you know, Space Station 5 would be like an airport. So they were looking at like, you know, replications of, of what was what, like what actual airports look like. And obviously, you know, airports are some of the first uh, first things to be commodified and branded um, with, with all those logos like, you know, brought to you by Howard Johnson's brought to you by, you know, Bell Telephone. Like those are those are the first places that kind of were able to like sell off uh, parts of themselves in order to pay for it. Because, you know, I mean, it's just it's supposed to be a lounge. Like, what do you like? You're not going to have like. I mean, you know, they're private companies anyway, but you're not going to have like a private company lounge. Like you're going to have brands in it. You're going to have people like, you know, sitting there and, and being able to talk on uh, like pay phones, like all of that stuff. So it, it definitely feels, it's definitely really interesting that it, uh, it kind of guessed that space would be like this because NASA now is selling um, on the international space station, obviously, like <coughs> they accepted tons of money from uh, companies to brand things on it. So it kind of feels like, I, I guess, life imitating art in that way. <laughs> it's very sad. It's very, very sad. I don't know if you have seen, but there's this clip from about maybe 10 years ago, maybe um, eight years ago or so. It was just be it wasn't long before um, Neil Armstrong died. And he's interviewed by 60 Minutes. I think it was six. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was 60 Minutes. Um. Uh, about his opinion about the new commercialization of space that was just getting going at that point. And he's mainly sort of referring to sort of Elon Musk. And, um, oh no, sorry, it's the other way around. It's not that um, Armstrong is interviewed. Elon Musk is interviewed about Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong makes a comment. Uh, I think he's, 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 uh, he's testifying before Congress. Um, basically, he's arguing against, Neil Armstrong is arguing against the commercialization of space. And 60 Minutes asked Elon Musk, so, you know, what do you think about this? This is, you know, Neil Armstrong is, is your great hero, one of your great heroes. What do you feel about him saying that space shouldn't be commodified, that it shouldn't be um, uh, for profit? Um, and and Elon Musk has a sort of little, his eyes get sort of teary and, like, oh, and sort of very happy at Elon Musk crying at Neil Armstrong. Um, telling this billionaire that um, space needs to be a public sector endeavor. Yeah. Well, the, the thing that becomes hard, though, is, is, you know, the enormous budgets of NASA projects, the enormous budget of going to anywhere in space, really, like, you know, I mean, building new technology is extraordinarily expensive. And in a time when we're kind of living in, a, in, in global austerity, um, yeah. these things get huge grants. But at the same time, like, all of a sudden it starts, you know, NASA starts looking for funding from other places or the space station or whatever yeah. it is, huge projects. And the first people to like want to be part of that are like McDonald's. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. you can see that with now, like they even had like the DHS, uh, the, the, the photo company that's just at the, in, in, in Ad Astra, like that's just in the, the space station. Yeah. Um, DHL, so, yeah. But, but then at the same time, it kind of turns it all into a, a replication of what's happening on earth, like everywhere, you know, like 
we're not even we're not even at an age where uh you know there's a country that doesn't have a McDonald's in it. And um so when so when James Gray was being um interviewed, uh, I was watching it and he he's he's talking about Ad Astra and and wanting to be as realistic, quote unquote, as possible, which means, you know, wanting to replicate the same systems that we have here on earth and to make point, like, he's definitely talking about it. And you have a great quote in, uh, that you found in, in your article that he said, um, about, you know, it's no longer, uh, a, a, wait, I'm going to find it, but, um, so he's talking about, it's no longer, you know, a battle between, uh, Russia and the U S we've kind of come to this consensus and, um, hold on. Well, anyway, so, I'll, I'll, I'll look at it. Uh, oh, here it is. Uh, Gray's critique is indeed one that laments what capitalism is doing, as we know from his comments to the press. If we were having this conversation in 1960, we could talk about the counterweight of the communist or socialist dictatorship bloc. Today, there's not really a counterweight to market capitalism, he told CNET. It's an unstoppable force. In the developed nations, the gap between the richest and poorest is growing ever larger. And why would we project that? Why would that we wait? Why would we project that space would be any different? Um, so, yeah, so we know from that from that quote that it isn't just a bit of color in the way that it is for maybe for some other science fiction films. It, it it's deliberately there. It is a critique, and you get that with the the line that um, uh, Roy McBride, the Brad Pitt character, uh, says as you see him you know, going through you know past the DHL shop and stuff like that. That his dad would have hated it. Uh, he would have torn it all down. Yeah, it, well, and and that's I mean. So, so much of this movie, I feel like, I think this brings us to a, to an interesting point of it. So much of this movie, his father is obviously looming large over him as a space explorer, a space conqueror, I would say, uh, more than anything, you know, he's kind of like the project that he's working on trying to contact aliens and like building this, this community seems like almost like an imperialist project, I'd say. Is you it? Know, like, Why? Um, well, this, his attitude towards it, it seems a lot like, you know, I, I'm not necessarily saying that he's. An imperialist, but number one, he's a brutal dictator on his ship. He he ends up murdering everybody yeah. in service of this bigger goal. And number two, it seems a lot like the the you know the age of exploration. He doesn't ultimately find what he's looking for, but it doesn't seem to be in service of capital as much as it seems in service of uh, some form of 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 scientific research that's going to lead to conquest, most likely. I, I mean, okay. I think this is a really important uh, point to bring up, and I'm sorry that I'm speaking too much, and I'll. So the Andrew is. I'm like, loving this. I, I, yeah, yeah I'm, no, you're. you're far, I'm just like this is this is freaking awesome, man. Okay. Your, your commentary on this is far more interesting than anything we would have talked about. I think. <laughs> I, I'd be uh, saying everybody's mermaids if, if it was just me talking. <laughs> that's uh, a that's a reference. To, we talked to Doug Lane earlier, um, and he had a. Uh, we, we watched this movie, and and Andy was like, at the end of it, I think everyone turned out to be mermaids. And Doug Lane was like, "What the fuck?" Like, <laughs> no, but like, you can totally watch that movie and get that 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 uh, interpretation of it. But that's all other. I didn't. I don't know. But, but anyway, uh, I sorry. was just going to no. say that I think we need to be able to distinguish. Certainly, as socialists, we need to be able to distinguish between um, scientific exploration and discovery from conquest or imperialism or colonialism or that that package of things. Um, uh, certainly. You can't have colonialism without discovery, without exploration. But one can imagine a world where we just go off and explore without the the, the domination, without the imperialism, without the colonialism. The only reason you would have that is if you have a sort of um, um, a class system that, and, and certainly a market system that, that requires um, extended 
um, in, increase in profits and, and so on and so forth. Um, um, if you have a system where you don't do that, you have a system like uh, exists potentially in Star Trek, where there is no uh, conception of um, imperialism or conquest. It's just pure discovery for its own sake. Yeah, and I don't, I don't, I don't inherently believe that you know uh, exploration has to be imperialist. My my comment on that character specifically is the extremely uh, authoritarian and violent impulses he seems to have towards his own crew, um, you know, uh, in service of this mission. I, I I don't think, I think there could be a, a highly benevolent person who just doesn't find life and keeps exploring and then his crew wants to go back yeah. and, and they bail. And then, you know, like, so I think that kind of person definitely can exist. I'm just saying this person seems like a number one, single-minded, but number two, like considering the violent the, the violent end he gives to his own crew in service of continuing this research, it, it I, I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily think. No, that this, no. I think that's a valid you know. reading. I think that's totally a valid reading. I, I simply took his um, uh, his murderous behavior towards his crew when they mutinied. Uh, what, I mean, as an expression of um, how committed he is to. Um, to exploration and discovery, um, especially in the face of he, he in fact, he basically he has faith that there is life elsewhere. There has to be. So in many respects, he's not being very scientific. He wants to prove his his hypothesis rather yeah, than before, test his hypothesis. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's interesting. Um, he so loves his subject uh, that he, he's 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 willing to kill his 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 crew for it. Um, I don't take it as a reading necessarily that that automatically translates into colonialism or imperialism or conquest. Um, uh, I just think it's, he's so irrationally committed to proving his hypothesis there. Um, and the reason I say some of this stuff is because his, uh, because James Gray's earlier film, uh, The Lost City of Zed, have you guys seen that? Or Z as he would say in the United States? No, I remember when it came out, I didn't end up, I didn't end up watching it. It's a brilliant film. It's an amazing. Oh, I, I, I heard good things about it after it came out. Um, so it is about the age of exploration and colonialism, and um, I think it's quite clear in in the Lost City of Zed. There's supposed to be this lost city in um, in in South America, and um, uh, there are figures who are explorers and uh, scientists who are very clearly colonial. And then there are other, uh, the, so the main characters, the main two characters, um, uh, Charlie Hunnam and Robert Pattinson are figures who are just explorers for their own sake. And the film in many respects, the main theme of the film or one of the main themes of the film is this distinction between exploration for um, conquest um, and exploration, scientific exploration for its own sake. And and their their antagonism, so I think yeah. that's a and, and he kind of he does that. he does make that distinction in this too, um, I think, um, <laughs> I, he does make that distinction in this too. I think um, when he pretty much shows that Spacecom itself is a colonial uh, a colonial operator in the sense of on the moon, on Mars, and uh, on the space station, all of these places, um, we're like still at war for natural resources. Like it, it's. It, we're replicating exactly the same systems everywhere else that we have here. Um, I'm going to make an argument saying that you can't have benevolent uh, exploration without 
you know, with the, with still having the needs to of extractive resources like oil or or whatever. Uh, and uh, Star Trek is actually interesting because like they they still have an extractive resource with the dilithium crystals. I mean, if you yeah. watched the last season of Discovery, that's really what the whole season was about. And it's like. Why can't we come up with, I mean, I know like, you, you know, whenever energy changes form, it loses quality, but like, like, couldn't there be like ways to like uh, do trans warp drive through solar winds and stuff like that? I don't know. I'm just, you know. No, I mean, it's a fundamental contradiction within the, within the myth, mythos of the series is that what enables them to be a post-capitalist society isn't a revolution, although it's a little bit vague exactly how that comes about because there's a third world war, but Primarily, it's the development of replicators. Um, but then if you have re the replicators that could create anything out of just <clears throat> reconstituting <clears throat> other atoms, other molecules. Um, but if you can do that, why can't you just create new dilithium crystals? Why do you need to extract them? Uh, so I think there's a contradiction there within it. But that <clears throat> all sort of science fiction and sort of speculative stuff ultimately you know, if you look too closely at it, you will find some some sort of contradictions there. Just don't but, let a don't let a plot yeah. hole ruin a good time. You know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but I actually disagree. I would say that there's nothing wrong with extraction at all, so long as it isn't uh, for profit. Um, one can imagine a an extractive process um, without profit, if the only purpose you would be doing that is for the betterment of human society. Um, including the ecosystems that uh, deliver its um, uh, you know, uh, ecosystem services upon which you know humans flourish, human flourishing depends. Um, if through the process of extraction <clears throat> or some extractive processes you undermine that flourishing, well, because you're a democratic, non-profit-driven society, you just decide that you won't do that. Yeah, um, but it's, I mean that's within if, if that's within if you're extracting within your own borders. I mean, you know, adding another. Like, let's say you added another group uh, or something to that process. Like, if you did discover aliens and you started extracting from them, even if it's not for profit, you know, that could still turn into an imperialist. Uh, but the crucial claim about socialism, or at least like full communism or like one day, is that it isn't uh, nation-based, that it is everybody. And so um, if you discover some more parts of everybody in the universe, you don't set up a border, you... They they are yeah. automatically extended as part of your uh, the realm of of um, of ethical concern. And I guess I guess what I'll say about um, I, I'm not I, I don't disagree, but this is a point I wanted to bring up about both 2001 and about Ad Astra is that we've kind of it seems like in Ad Astra nations still seem to be uh, fighting over resources, but yeah. it kind of feels like in a lot of these cases um, space exploration has kind of uh, transcended borders on our specific planet. Um, so in 2001, especially, it seems like there's a world government yeah. of some form that's, that's because, you know, I mean, even if like different nations have their own, uh, you know, have their own places, it still, it still seems like there's a, you know, a, um, it's, it still seems like there's some kind of uh, world government that, that governs these things. Like all, all the characters, at least in 2001 have like different accents. Um, you know, seem to be from different places. So I, I don't know. I, I thought that was interesting. It's the this idea. Was that... the, this was the presumption in the uh, post-war period that um, we would steadily develop towards a sort of world government, that there would be world peace, and that um, um, uh, I mean, certainly within um, from uh, socialists 
and communists, the idea was, you know, l'intérêt national, the the international, would be the whole world. It wouldn't be socialism in different countries, but ultimately it would be everywhere. And liberals also sort of adhere to that, uh, if perhaps a little bit more sort of uh, figuring it would take a bit longer to achieve something like that. But that was that was part of the worldview. Today, um, we regularly stumble across uh, conceptions of. Um, even on the, the far left, um, just assuming that there will still be nations after we build socialism. Um, I think it's another, spe as a, another species of capitalist realism, the imagining that there can't possibly be a world government. I was, uh, I've, I've been listening to a lot of um, books about the CIA, and I was listening to uh, The Devil's Chessboard is the, is the one I'm listening to right now, and they go into the, the Bretton Woods conference and like, the dream that, um, and of course that wouldn't have been, I mean, th this conception of it would have still been a, an incredibly uh, unequal um, sure. world, but like, but there still was this belief that, you know, FDR had that became the World Bank and IMF. And then, you know, once the intelligence service kind of took that over, became a, an, ex an extremely uh, destructive force. But like FDR kind of originally thought of that as like almost like a utopian outside of um, world government yeah. kind of force, like a new world order. Um, and then it kind of was tanked very quickly by, you know, the Dulles brothers and um, all of the all and, and, you know, Nixon, McCarthy and like all of the different, um, uh, you know, forces that really wanted to have the Cold War happen. When yeah, FDR we, I mean, we shouldn't sort of overstate how um, sort of benevolent FDR was, but certainly the impulse between uh, sort of at the outset of the Bre Bretton Woods organizations was to try to. Um, make sure that the financial or economic um, uh, instability that played such a huge role in kicking off, you know, the rise of fascism, the Second World War, the Holocaust, that we wouldn't ever do that again. And to ensure that uh, wouldn't happen ever again, we had to have these sort of institutions that more carefully um, uh, sort of monitor the, sort of the global uh, financial situation, as you say, within you know, fairly, uh, you know, a short order. Uh, this was used as an instrument of American um, imperialism rather than the more, that sort of that moment of um, sort of liberal internationalism didn't really last for, for long. Yeah. So uh, I got a question. It certainly was there. I, I was just going to say if, uh, I was just wondering, like, um, you know, we, we were kind of, you kind of divided the, the films between like before neoliberalism, you know, the era of neoliberalism and, and after. Um, what would you say about like the seventies certainly had a, a different take in sci-fi in general with, uh, like the, the, uh, rise of lifeboat, uh, kind yeah. of, um, uh, uh, I, for, I forget the exact term, but like, like, uh, you know, there's the, uh, spaceship earth concept yeah, and, and running out of yeah. like, uh, different things. Cause you had like, uh, uh, Z ZPG and, uh, uh yeah. <laughs> um, soil and green and, and uh, yeah. all, all those, uh, you know, classic they're films like that. And they, they're, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're not of the neoliberal era, but they're also not of this uh, post-war. Uh, yeah. and, and do you think that kind of also like uh, led into the neoliberalism area, uh, era of the, um, sorry, I haven't quite fully thought out this question. No, so, it's a great question. Um, um, yeah, you see where I'm going though, right? Totally. Uh, okay. So, it's, it's useful historically to, to sort of draw a line in the sand and say, um, you know, 1973, you have the oil crisis. This is the beginning of the new, uh, neoliberal era. Before that, everything was, you know, 
um, Keynesian welfare state, everything's tickety-boo. That's not how the real world works. Um, mm -hmm. um, it's more, there's more of a gradation than that. Uh, nevertheless, we, there is some utility in marking a distinction between the broad trends um, in the West, uh, in the post-war period, and the broad trends after that. And the 1970s are that sort of transition period. So it's not surprising that there would be some sort of mixture of these sorts of ideas. It's not fully neoliberal yet, but it's not sort of, they're, all, they're definitely going through the, the real ructions and, and uh, sort of, te yeah, tectonics or ructions with respect to the, 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 the breakdown of the post-war consensus. Um, we see that in terms of uh, the quite r radical uh, increase in, 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 in Class struggles sort are of almost violent um, in many countries. Italy in the uh, in 1977, sort of the, the hot autumn in Italy, was 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 extremely violent. Um, sort of reactions to trying to pull apart the um, the post-war consensus, um, but also at this this period by the late late 60s, we are getting much more of a an awareness from science of um, uh, some of the ecological challenges that we we were facing. Um, particularly with respect to pollution, Pl um, acid rain, um, not really plastic pollution yet, but um, some of the synthetic chemicals that have been developed in the post-war period. And there were two sort of response, possible responses to this. One was a sort of Malthusian response to this, uh, which has, a, you know, try calling for the end to, end to growth, end to population growth. Um, and had some very, very, very dark edges to that with respect to closing the borders, um, uh, really, really nasty, quite racist comments with respect to, you know, there's, you know, um, so many people in, in Calcutta that are just swarming over each other, you just even use words like swarm and um, pretty, gro pretty gross, grotesque. And this was in the heart of people like the Sierra Club, a big mainstream green organization. Um, and then there was a more sort of working class, a socialist perspective that rejected Malthusianism. They said, no, 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 the, uh, there's nothing wrong with people. There can never be too many people. Uh, there can never be too much stuff. Uh, the question is market relations. That's the uh, class relations. That's, that's the fundamental challenge that we face. That there is a, if a company produces something that we, that science tells us now discovers that is, is harmful uh, to the environment um, and thus to us, uh, then there continues to be an incentive for that private company to continue to produce that, even after we discovered it's a problem. Um, whereas if you have a, um, um, a sort of a socialist system, if you discover, if your scientists discover that there's this, this bad commodity, it's much more easy for you to say, well, we'll just stop production of this. It may be a useful commodity, but uh, so there might be still be some issues with how long it takes for you to, to, to shut off production of that commodity. But at least there isn't any sort of incentive anymore um, from a private actor to, uh, you know, by lobbyists to try to change uh, the, the minds of the, uh, the elected representatives or uh, to put out ads that basically lie about the, uh, the safety of that particular commodity, the way that we do. Uh, I think... I think I think that um, that like the point that you're making right now is why I devoured uh, People's Republic of Walmart so so voraciously when I when I um, read it last summer was the conception of socialism not as a brand new uh, not as a brand new necessarily economic apparatus in the sense of like the the things that already exist suddenly disappearing 
and you know, no like consumer goods disappearing and all this yeah. stuff, which is something that obviously we get accused of all the time as democratic socialists. Like, oh, you really want to create a, a society where um where we can't get this, 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 and this. I I was I was just blown away by your conception of it as a um and your co-author's conception of it as a as a series of distribution centers. And of course, um one of the one of the most interesting ones is Allende's uh computer project in, in Chile before he was Cyber overthrown. Center, yeah. yeah. So, but, but even just, you know, um, things like Walmart still, you know, having a distribution chain that solves a lot of these economic issues and suddenly socialism becomes not just, um, not just, you know, all right, well, we're going to give, you know, money, money all around, like redistribute wealth, but the goods can actually be distributed in a different way. And that's really what we're looking to do. Um, because, you know, it really, you are, you start arguing with someone who considers themselves a capitalist, which I think is a dumb thing to consider yourself if you don't own any property or a company or anything like you're just you're kind of just uh, a status quo warrior. You're not necessarily a capitalist, but you know I'll I'll call them capitalists. Um, constantly argue, and they're like, "Oh well, you don't want anyone to have anything. You want everyone to starve." And it's like every everything already exists, though. Like it's not like the TVs suddenly vanish and, and the consumer products suddenly vanish. I mean, you know, the 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 manufacture and, and production are going to change, I'm sure, but like it doesn't have to necessarily be that all consumer goods disappear. Like what the fuck do you think is going to happen to them? Do you think we're going to just explode? Like send them to the moon? Like we're like, all right, no more for anyone else. I mean, I think we, we probably could imagine if we were democratically deciding production in society that we probably would democratically choose a different suite, a suite of many different products. Some of them will be the same. We're still going to be producing underwear and we're still going to be producing uh, uh, craft beer and all these 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 sorts of things, but uh, oh, maybe maybe then um, maybe I need a, a different a different thing then if we're gonna keep producing craft beer, that needs <laughs> to bring out the worst people. <laughs> <laughs> but you know maybe we wouldn't need to serve like eleven different varieties of uh, of of uh, uh, you know detergent that basically all do the same thing. So yeah. those that that sort of thing those sort of priorities would be would be different but would we still have detergent? Yes, of course we would still have detergent. Yeah. And the crucial thing here is that because there are a lot of environmentalists um on the sort of degrowth um or austerity ecology eco-austerity kind of um end of things which I critique in my my first book and they sort of do have this anti-consumerist perspective that uh we consume too much stuff, we don't need all these things and um, um, it's, um, it, it, it's missing the, it's missing the heart of the problem, which is the, the, the market incentive to create bad things. If there's uh, good things, um, that people, people need, I mean, everybody night likes a little bit of color in their lives. We need not just bread, but roses too. And one of the main criticisms, internal criticisms of people from within the Soviet Union, um, uh, was that. You know, it's great that we've got these, well, not great, but I mean, there's terrible things about the Soviet Union. I'm, I'm fervent anti-Stalinist, but, um, you know, okay, so you built um, steel mills and, and, and coal mines um, and railroads and you electrified the entire country, but uh, there's no jeans uh, with zippers that work. There's no, we uh, want there's, blue there's no rock and roll records, no pineapples, <laughs> um, you know. It was so gray. Wasn't that the great criticism of, so of yeah. socialism? Sorry. It was so gray. I was telling a story earlier about my uh, my uncle. <laughs> and uh, my uncle was a commercial fisherman, and he'd meet uh, a Soviet uh, uh, fisherman out in the, the ocean. And they, they 
uh, they bring like stack of blue jeans and pineapples. Right. And that was the thing I couldn't remember. So thank you. For my, yeah. And <laughs> they just like meet in the ocean and they get like bottles of vodka. And my, my cousin had all these like uh, Soviet Union trinkets. Uh, it was like, you know, rocking the tanky look in 89. Uh, so <laughs> it, it was. Uh, Listen, you know. we love we love the trains, but the fact that we have no blue jeans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, we joke about it, but it was, it was really, really a, cr a crucial thing that, People desperately wanted to to trade to to get uh, the je blue jeans illegal to get the rock and roll records illegally, um, and we've got to remember that that's what these eco austerity people are promising. They're saying that basically the same thing as the Stalinist uh, leaders that you don't you don't need this. This is this is unimportant. <laughs> uh, that's my terrible Russian accent there. Uh, mine wasn't mine wasn't good either, but. <laughs> I know um, Michael Brooks uh, a while back, since we've been all thinking about him uh, this week, uh, he, he uh, said something like, um, you know, I want everybody to have uh, access, you know, I want everybody to be able to buy, uh, to afford to buy Nikes. Yeah. And, and exactly. have them not be made in a sweatshop yeah. in, in my socialist future. Yeah. yeah and, I, and I think that's point, I think point A of my conception exactly. of socialism uh, is, is Michael saying, it's not that I don't want, like, because Michael was always wearing Adidas. Like you know what I mean? Like it's not like Michael was like you know uh, one of one of the the socialists that are that were like, hey, I don't even want to wear any like brands. Like Michael loved his fucking Adidas tracksuits, like as did Fidel Castro, which is kind of funny. But um, anyway, so uh, you know the thing that Michael would say is like, it, it, I want everyone to have access to better things. Like we, we're not going to win anybody else. We're not going to win more people by saying we want everyone to have worse things. Like yeah. we want everyone. We want more people to have nice like like good good things and to have like luxury and to have a nice life. Like, so that was, I think that's point A on my conception of, uh, of, of what socialism could be. And then point B is obviously the people's Republic of Walmart thing that I referenced, which is the distribution chain. So it, it I think those things both uh, radically uh, transformed me from someone that, you know, I was, um, I mean, I grew up with, with parents that were, you know, pretty, I mean, like hippie parents. And I went to like a hippie uh, like, like school when I was a lot younger. And like, so a lot of times, my conception of, of what, you know, the left was, was more of like a liberal, like, come on, man. Like, you know, like we don't have to wear all these brands and these logos and like the, like the rejection of that. And it's like, but, but like, I like those things too, not necessarily the, the brands or like the logos part of it, but like, I want to have night, like, I don't want to have bad things. And we constantly as socialists are told that like, oh, we're, we're creating a system that you aren't going to have nice things. You're not going to have, things aren't going to be nice anymore. Things like you said, are going to be gray. And for for 40 yeah. years, for 40 years, working people across the West have suffered through um, uh, wage constraints, uh, which is, uh, you know, this is what Thatcher and Reagan, um, uh, uh, Mulroney in Canada help, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, Cole in, in, in Germany, all these, these neoliberal figures, that's what they wanted to do. That was the primary aim is to keep down wages. There are other aspects as well in terms of privatization um, and liberalization of sort of like energy systems and stuff like that. But primarily it was about um, constraining wages. And for 40 years, that has largely been successful um, from their perspective. Um, there's been constraint in wages. In some um, parts of, of the Western economy, wages have actually declined. It does depend. Some sectors have increased, but overall, the standard of living has not really um, increased. And as we know, in the United States in particular, um, just ahead of the pandemic, for the very first time since the Second World War, uh, the uh, life expectancy actually declined, which is mind-blowing. Yeah. And, and um, deaths of despair and deaths of despair went up 
drastically as soon as that, like, like, uh, you know, as like, cause you know, there's different, like there's different kinds of death. Like obviously we, we could live like under capitalism, like, you know, there's isn't very much regard for life, but the deaths of despair thing, it, you know, yeah. as like life expenses decline and a bigger percent of it are suicides, drug overdoses, like th- and so things. much of this comes down to, to financial struggles. And so um, if we are, if we are saying as a result of sort of our, uh, our mistaken environmental consciousness, uh, mistaking actually what the cause of environmental problems problems are. We're telling working people, the mass of working people across the West, that we all consume too much. After 40 years of not bear of, of struggling to buy stuff, we're telling these people, you know, follow us. We promise less. It is a recipe for the for uh, no absolutely nobody voting for socialism. And yeah. This isn't what we 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 mean anyway. I think this is a. This is a cuckoo's nest in the uh, cuckoo's egg in the nest of the left. It's not what we're about. If you're yeah. on the picket line and the workers are fighting for higher wages and they win and we want them to win, what are those workers going to do? They're going to buy more stuff. So it's, yeah, it, there's just this sort of intellectual disconnect. Um, uh, telling lots and lots of, um, under neoliberalism, it's you seems... you know you want higher wages, but don't spend those higher wages. Yeah. Under neoliberalism, it seems like these disconnects are, are created emphatically, like these almost like logical black holes. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's definitely one of them in, in the response to it. But it's also very interesting um, that you that you said, uh, you know, like sacrificing things like it's interesting that neoliberalism obviously starts kind of under Carter. Like Carter is really, I think, the, the first like the first truly neoliberal figure. And it's, yep. you know, his his uh, his austerity his austerity is personal austerity, which is kind of a crazy thing because Reagan, you know, Reagan is obviously our, our, our neoliberal revolution president. You know what I mean? Like he's kind of the person that seems like the central figure, but before him, Carter's, you know, his main thing was uh, sacrifice, sacrifice. You need to sacrifice. And of course wages went with that, but you know, it's also sacrifice consumption. So if the response to that is once again, sacrifice consumption, we're trying to, you know, uh, claim that we are both, we are both fighting like, we started neoliberalism under an austerity economy and we're kind of continuing, we're going to end neoliberalism under a, a austerity economy. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Austerity doesn't feel any better if it is like um, painted green. Yeah. Sorry, Andy. Andy I know. I was going to say something just saying like, uh, uh, you know, to put it in terms of like music so people can kind of understand it too. Um, you know, Carter was like television and, and uh, Reagan was like the Sex Pistols, you know. Uh, <laughs> and if you want to continue out that analogy, that would make Iggy Pop Richard Nixon. No, you will not do that to Iggy <laughs> Friend of, good friend of show Iggy Pop. I love Iggy Pop. We, we played we played the Iggy Pop uh, video, didn't we? Um, the other day for Repo Man. Remember when he's talking about how he met? Yeah. <laughs> Um, if you can actually get Iggy Pop on, on your show, like, you know at that point you totally made it. Yeah. It'd be amazing. I can see what I can do. I, I got connections with the music industry. I, uh, yeah. I'm no sad. My dad, my dad uh, heroes, though. I'd, I'd come on and be like, oh, fucking capitalism is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> my my dad worked as a in, in the city for an architecture firm. He now he works he works for himself now and designs like those uh really bougie uh um green like greenhouses which is very it's very good that those exist but the fact that you know only rich people can really afford green architecture kind of fucking sucks yeah. um like you know brings us back to that point like you know 
green like green housing for all and, and my dad's not opposed to that or anything but like that's what he wanted to do he was like you know i, I remember he dragged me to go see um i mean not drag me like it was a good it's good uh, it was a good moment i guess for the for the human race but al gore doing the uh, inconvenient truth documentary he dragged me to that five times <laughs> when i was when it first came out in different movie theaters um i don't i don't think al gore's response to it is the right response obviously yeah. he's a centrist but you know the fact that we know that now, and it's not like just some memo in a in a Exxon Mobil desk that like you know that that's existed since the '70s that nobody's like ever bothered to ask about. You know what I mean? That that's that's kind of or, or leak uh, <laughs> is kind of I think why it was a good moment for humanity in the sense of like at least now we know the problem. Of course, the solution isn't what any fucking centrist Democrat is going to make the solution, but you know. Well, I mean. Uh... Um, it's complicated. Um, uh, I do think that um, the Biden is not going far, far enough, fast enough um, with respect to decarbonizing the economy. Um, at the same time, some of the suite of technologies that um, his administration is proposing that we do more research and development with respect uh, respect to climate change. And um, incentivize the, the build out of. Um, I think these are some of the uh, the correct technologies that, that we will need for deep decarbonization. My problem primarily is that it's always about incentivization rather than a direct state build out or creative new government public agencies to, to be doing this. That's where my criticism um, lies, not the set of technologies. And ironically, um, I have some pretty severe criticisms of some of the sort of green left or the climate left uh, folks where they will be focusing almost exclusively on variable renewable energies like solar and wind um yeah and I, mean, I actually i actually uh edited the the clips or clips from uh when you had the jacobin debate about um nuclear, nuclear energy. power nu yeah yeah so, so, so i, I was the one that just about nuclear it's also things like um ultimately we'll be needing some form of carbon capture and storage if we want to uh, want to stabilize um, or reduce um, 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 atmospheric carbon uh, dioxide concentrations back to a to an optimum level for human flourishing and much of the green left is like just straight up opposed to carbon capture and storage and direct air capture regardless rather what, what I would say is we have to be careful to make sure that carbon capture and storage isn't used um, as an excuse not to uh, sunset fossil fuel industries, uh, we need to be doing it as well as, but I think that's where the struggle is, not that we shouldn't uh, be doing uh, carbon capture and storage or direct air capture. And similar things yeah. like... No, I was just going to just interject, like I, I was on Barnes blog uh, yesterday and um, uh, I, I made this comment at the end, you know, we need to be thinking of not just the long-term goals and we can't forget the long-term goals, you know, but we also need to be thinking of those short-term goals to make those long-term goals possible. Yep. Uh, so, so carbon capture is a great short-term goal, and uh, you know, yeah, liberals might get all excited about that, and we can actually team up together with people who who think that that's the be-all end-all and get that done. So then we can start the next fight and get them primed for you know the failures of what carbon capture is, because you know it's it's it's, it's a step in the right direction, but not the answer. I would I would say just do both at the same time. Um, um, but another example of, along these lines, and it fits with these sorts of technologies as well, um, 
is we know that it's going to be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to decarbonize, or so rather to electrify um, long haul shipping and long haul aviation. Um, mainly because, like, I mean, there's a number of different reasons, but basically, you don't have, there's no, there are no recharging stations in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I mean, it's more complicated than that. I mean, basically, uh, that you know, length of trajectory, length of journey, uh, by that point, the, the, the scale of the batteries that you're going to be needed, you're it, it's so voluminous um, that basically it takes up the entire ship. And all that you're doing there is you're just moving a massive battery back and forth. So we know that we're going to need some sort of clean fuels instead of electricity there. Whether, we don't know exactly what that's going to be, uh, whether that's going to be um, synthetic hydrocarbons, uh, where we draw down carbon dioxide um, from the atmosphere and produce hydrogen cleanly, um, maybe from um, using advanced heat sources from advanced use thermal or from dedicated nuclear reactors that only produce high quality heat, not electricity, um, but whatever, you know, and, and just create uh, carbon neutral um, fuels that will still look and, and smell. And as far as the, the internal combustion engines are concerned, they, they'll be running on the same fuels. It's just at this time that they're, uh, they're carbon neutral or they, it could be ammonia some challenges technologically with developing that. Well, there's technological challenges with developing all these different things, but we need to get on that stuff right away. We can't wait um, until 2030 to be developing our, um, uh, our heavy transport fuels. Um, and the thing is that there's a lot of people in the Biden administration that know that. Even if I don't prefer their, uh, their policy or their suite of economic policies to achieve that, they're not wrong about the technology, whereas a lot of the green green left or climate left don't even know that this is an issue. Like, I mean, their solution to aviation is just no aviation. Like, yeah. Stop it. Well, yeah, and, and that and that gets how us are back people going to gonna fly from Hawaii to uh, to the mainland? How are they going to send their elected representatives to Congress or their uh, union leaders to some um, uh, general meeting? That, and that brings us back to like the austerity economy points yeah. that you were making, like the, the fact that, you know, you're not going to win anybody over by saying you're going to have less, less things that you rely on. Like, that's not how you win people over. And the other thing I think I wanted to bring up with this is like, the and, and then I want to go back to Ad Astra to, to close yeah. out. Do you, <laughs> you have, do you have, do you have like a 20 more minutes or 15 more minutes yeah, or something? Sure. Yep. Okay. Um, this, this guy, like, I don't know. I wish, I wish we could have this conversation for like, you know, like like hours to be honest because it's days like, but yeah <laughs> but um so i think that the just transition is extremely important too um as and and in different sectors and i think it gets focused on a lot in in oil but like it's gonna have to get focused on um to some degree with shipping probably too and like you know all like all of everything that really requires oil and everything that really requires uh you know incredibly wasteful fuels to some degree for a little bit is going to have to require some kind of just transition and the fact that you know a lot of uh, both a lot of i mean centrists don't give a fuck like centrist like democrats and, and centrist uh you know even like even like some of the more liberal republicans they don't really exist as much anymore but like there's still some that acknowledge that climate change is a problem and you know their their solution is going to be like learn to code the fucking Rahm manual thing yeah. like so that's not a real solution so i think it is important to understand that you know, and, and that, this gets to the distribution point again that, that we were talking about. Like, uh, people are gonna are going to transition into jobs in other fields that are more renewable, 
And it's important that that point gets brought up by the left. And it doesn't seem like a lot of people, a lot of the climate, like the, the ego, I guess the eco-socialists don't seem to really be that concerned about that. Um, and, and making that point and making that justification for it. Nobody's going to vote for you if they think their job's going to go away. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. The, uh, the climate left's version of learn to code is uh, embedded in a lot of their Green New Deal proposals. And I actually support a Green New Deal. I just don't uh, support the technologies, that, or not all the technologies that they're proposing there. Um, uh, their version of uh, learn to code is um, slap um, solar panels on roofs and stuff insulation in building retrofits, both of which are unskilled jobs. At best, you're going to be earning, you know, $16 an hour. Um, and they're not, uh, they're not permanent. They're temporary jobs. They'll, they, 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 once those, those things are done, those jobs are gone. Whereas some of the things that I was just talking about in terms of a serious uh, consideration of how we're going to um, start producing synthetic hydrocarbons um, or ammonia fuels, um, if you're a pipe fitter, at the moment, in the gas industry, in the uh, natural gas industry, or pipe fitter um, in the, uh, the the oil industry, it doesn't really matter whether what's flowing through that pipeline is natural gas or synthetic carbon neutral gas. You still need those those pipe fitters. Yeah, and those pipe fitters are earning you know seventy thousand, eighty thousand, maybe one hundred and twenty thousand a year. These are good family supporting jobs. This is, these are the kind of jobs that existed in the fifties. Where one person could work and that would, you know, be enough for a family. Um, that's what we're fighting for. And if um, so, we really need to be very, very aware of not just what will work best in terms of a rapid de decarbonization, but also what sort of jobs really do deliver a just transition. Uh, and we don't end up doing in, unintentionally making the same issuing the same line. You know, learn to code, but in this case, it's slap solar panels on roofs well and and bernie did a really good job with his uh federal jobs guarantee um idea which was that you know like whether or not uh we're we're in a in a more of like a far more green economy we're still going to need to overhaul the infrastructure um in our entire society oh, and for sure that's that's a temp that might be a, a somewhat temporary thing but that's still you know a good amount of time that if we're you know if we're taking if we're put, like pouring money into infrastructure and then um like refitting everything to be way more green uh, a lot of that is going to require the same kinds of work as, you know, fixing the infrastructure the way we do it now, but it's going to be in a different type of technology, which Bernie was making a really good point that like, make the point that you're like, it's not that we're taking away jobs, we're adding infrastructure jobs. Like, that's a point that's going to have to, you know. I mean, it does depend what we're talking about. We do have to get into the nitty gritty of, of what's in the policies there. And as much as I love Bernie, um, I mean, I've got my Bernie mug like on my desk here behind um, the, my, my computer, I'm definitely all in for Bernie. Um, I do think that his climate policies, uh, they were far too captured by this sort of eco-austerity left, um, that he wasn't paying enough attention to both um, the evidence and the science with respect to what will actually, uh, what set of climate solutions would de deliver a rapid uh, deep decarbonization wasn't paying enough attention to problems with respect to maintaining um, a firm supply of electricity on the grid and wasn't really paying much attention to um, the kinds of high quality, uh, high paid, high skilled, family supporting jobs for the just transition. Um, but 
obviously because I think there are many other in issues that are uh, as important or if not more important than climate change. Um, I was like, I'll, I'll overlook that because these other issues are broadly, and I, I would hope to try to win Bernie and his supporters to a, a more coherent uh, position with respect to uh, climate uh, solutions. I, I guess, think we're beginning to see yeah. that now. Um, like um, Jacobin, um, even Novara in the UK um, are putting putting out um, arguments in favor of nuclear power. Um, there was a great um, discussion on Doug Henwood's uh, podcast a couple of days ago, maybe a week ago, with Christian Parenti making a defense of carbon capture and storage. And no, none of these people you could say are, are not left wing. You know, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Eva Morales, uh, Lula da Silva, uh, AOC supports nuclear. Um, all, all these people support nuclear. So there's something really changing now. Um, where I think we're beginning to win this argument amongst uh, amongst folks, because people do want solutions. I don't think I don't think most people want to be eco austerity leftists. Like yeah. it just seems like we're reaching such an insurmountable point that like people are like we have to put it like like this like and and I think a lot of this also comes from um, like an eighties and nineties and early two thousands conception of what the left can really do. And at that point, it's really the the, the point that everyone was making wasn't we're going to win political power. It's everything is becoming really corporatized. We need to put the, we need to, to stop it while it's happening, but now yeah. it's happened. And now we kind of have more of a chance to win real political power. And it, it kind of sucks that, you know, uh, policies are not really put at the forefront necessarily of a lot of um, election cycles, because I just, I just like the Bernie was making a point about there needing to be um, statements about a just transition anyway. You know what I mean? Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. It wasn't totally. like, I don't, I don't think if he had gotten to the nitty gritty of it on, on like a, like in a debate, like, everyone would have just been like, all right, well, let's, let's start talking about Russia again. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so it makes it really hard. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, I want everyone's quality of life to go up. I am against austerity yeah, yeah. In, in any form and eco austerity. Like, you know, I, I, it's, it's austerity. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't change the fact that that's exactly what it is. But um, I guess I wanted to like, since, you know, since it's getting towards that time to go back to Ad Astra, which right. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, uh, I thought this would be an interesting question, I guess, to close out with. What do you think was the least, and I'll ask Andy too, but what do you think was the least uh, believable or the least uh, scientific part of the film itself? Like, do you think it was the space baboons, which... No, 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 the space baboons, I mean, uh, that, it was just a, a weird episode that seemed to be um, uh, out of joint with the rest of the the, the, the narrative. Um, no, it's that the, the primary threat to the earth is, are these cosmic rays um, emerging from, um, uh, from Neptune heading towards the earth. And there's one point where, you know, there's this major general or lieutenant general or whatever, lieutenant general, sorry. Uh, I remember it's American audience here, lieutenant general um, says, and the cosmic rays are getting stronger and stronger as they closer to earth. Um, yeah, <laughs> and that's just not how. Well, it's because they were, came from the it came the from the antimatter. Get away, so, the weaker. Uh, yeah, it's called the inverse square law. Um, yeah, no, that, but that, that just logically that makes sense. But you know, it's it's antimatter, so everything's backwards, and uh, you know the rules of physics don't <laughs> matter anymore. I they they explained it really weirdly too. They're like, oh, his ship is powered by antimatter, and he probably lost control, and like the fuel is sending like. I don't know. It was a very weird, and then they're like, "But it's also him trying to communicate, like he's sending a text." And it, 
like the text is just maybe maybe the text gets angrier and angrier as it goes. It just he's like, like <laughs> yeah, <I need help." laughs> it was that sort of uh, wibbly wobbliness um, uh, of of that that was that was the worst. But I thought, but it's also, I mean, how much of it? How much of it? Is realistically though, I guess th this is this is the defense I'll give of this because yeah. I could like I'll counterpoint it. Spacecom it seems like is incredibly realistically treated as almost like an intelligence agency, like the same way the CIA is. Like they're covering up the fact that this guy is essentially a, a space dictator. They're covering up all this different stuff. Their true intentions, like everything is 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 classified. It's a, it's kind of a it's a space intelligence agency at that point, yeah. like less than it is a scientific one. So how much of that is just their bullshit? Where they're like, oh, it's getting stronger. When really the point of why they're trying to hunt him down isn't the cosmic rays; it's that they want to have him liquidated. Yeah, but that's not that's not a sort of question of scientific accuracy. Yeah, no, I'm just I'm just that was my I guess that was my counterpoint for um, the movie itself. Like, how much can you really believe that comes from uh, the the? I mean, I um, I really liked its attempt at high realism. Um, it's far from perfect, um, but. Um, there's been this suite of uh, sort of hard science fiction films in the last few years, uh, Interstellar, Gravity, um, High Life, um, uh, Ad Astra, I'm Missing Some. Um, um, and they've made a, a really good attempt. There's always issues. You're never going to get it perfect. And to some extent, you can sort of allow a little bit um, of, of artistic license just so it does, doesn't go all the way to sort of you know, Star Wars or, or Avengers, where uh, there's science is just basically a, a prop. And uh, there's not, not even any attempt at having any sort of scientific accuracy. I'd, I'd argue that magic. It's yeah, I'd, magic. I'd, I'd argue that Star Wars isn't a science fiction film. I'd argue that Star Wars is a, yeah. is a, is a fantasy film in yeah. the vein. I mean, you know, George Lucas is obviously incredibly uh, inspired by Joseph Campbell, which so is, um, you know, you know, so is James Gray, but in different ways, I guess. Um, it seems like it seems like uh, Star Wars is a lot more like something like Wizard of Oz than it is uh, yeah. like a science Absolutely. fiction. Absolutely, it's a yeah. fantasy film, <laughs> and Avengers is fantasy. Um, uh, Avengers is 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 CIA propaganda, but you know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a conversation. <laughs> I, I I always find it very strange uh, to find those uh, like um, I guess. You, well, no, you don't. Would have the. There's no such thing as a a video store anymore. But certainly online on on Netflix or whatever, that they'll be categorized in the science fiction section, and they're not at all. They're fantasy. They're space fantasy. Yeah, I wish there was a better. Uh, I guess a better term than science fiction because science fiction kind of makes it sound like science. Like you can you can be like, well, it is science fiction. There's you know it's it, it's fictional. Like you know what I mean. Like I wish there was like a realistic cosmic cosmic fiction i would say or something like well, that well the, the terms that people would usually use or critics would use, or fans would use is the distinction between hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi yeah so um uh, ad astra interstellar uh gravity those are hard sci-fi but even with hard sci-fi it doesn't mean that everything's absolutely always scientifically accurate there may be some little uh, bits and pieces, but generally they try to aim towards uh, scientific accuracy. Um, but then, yeah, the other ones would be soft, uh, soft sci-fi, or even as we've just said, said like space fantasy. I think they're like Doctor Who would be a good example of where, sort of the old Doctor Who, there would be serials which really lean towards uh, hard sci-fi with some 
weird aspects that are not scientific and accurate. And then other ones, which were just nothing but space fantasy. And then you would have um, Star Trek, which is totally hard hard sci-fi, except that there's a handful of um, things that are just completely not realistic at all within science. And even the science that we knew in the 1960s, um, and they're just in, they're put in there mainly because it would be hard to film otherwise, like things around gravity um, and certainly the warp drive. Uh, that's impossible. I really, I really, really, really love uh, 2001, the space odyssey's treatment of uh, basically making it like the ship is powered by them running, like people having to run around basically a giant hamster wheel. Like <laughs> that was like inspired by RC Clark inspired that by like actual technology. You know what I mean? Like, that he conceived of like i think arthur c clark is probably the most um he like when it comes to like hard side like he's he's the most uh a lot of times most accurate because he literally was um he he was involved in that field like you know what i mean so like, arthur c clark is totally yeah. hard sci-fi yeah. isaac asimov hard sci-fi um uh, many of the great uh like like within the, the sort of literature books uh, you can be uh, fairly easily, um, straightforwardly hard sci-fi because you aren't constrained by budgets or the infeasibility of filming um, uh, low-gravity environments or, or, or anything like that because it's just on the page. The, yeah. uh, the, the lack of scientific accuracy creeps in at largely as a result of the inability to um, get that across um, in film. But now, which I think this is one of the interesting things, is that because in recent years uh, we have such amazing um, abilities to uh, to tell stories in a way that we never could before um, in the the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties. I mean, that's allowing fantastical storytelling on the level of Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, but is also allowing us now finally to have some pretty hard science fiction but even there there's still some some limits but in the i, I think we're we're enter, entering a period where we're going to see a lot more um hard sci-fi filmic and televisual televisual representations simply because we can now yeah and i, I think that's why i mean and, and andy i'll let you go i'll let you go uh, uh on this question after after i get done with this statement i guess but um like one of the most you're muted um, I do that. Most, <laughs> no, I, so one of the most interesting, I mean, things about Arthur C. Clarke specifically in 2001 is that we really did not know that much about what the, the universe looked like. Like, obviously you could see, you know, we had telescopes, we had satellites, we had, you know, a few of these things, but in, uh, 1964 at the world's fair, I'm pretty sure it was the year that, um, that the, they had like the first, like the first couple of realistic. And I think it was, uh, your home, your home nation of Canada, the, the first uh, World's <laughs> Fair, uh, the Canadian Canadian version of like NASA, like uh, they they created what was pretty much the most accurate at the time um, movie showing us the universe. Um, which you know, people that ended the up world's, the World's Fair in 1986. No, 1964. 1964. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll double check that. I was around. I just no, know the no, Expo 67 song, but that's a whole other story. Oh, that's right. Expo 67. Um, was, that Montreal? was that Montreal? Yes, it was. Okay. So Kubrick and, and Arthur C. Clarke, I'm pretty sure it was 1964, sent um, sent people, sent like their like like writers that were writing with them to the World's Fair um, to, to collect stuff. And they ended up getting a copy of this, uh, 
this documentary or not documentary, but like the, the science, the most scientifically accurate film um, at the time of like what the universe would look like. Like it was designed obviously by a team in Canada, I think of, um, of both, uh, uh, you know, filmmakers and, and, and scientists. And they were really like a lot of the way that they conceived of what the universe would look like um, was this film. So Arthur C. Clarke was really, I mean, and also he had connections at NASA. Obviously, he was like, you know, he's involved in the British, uh, the, the British astronomy. Like, so all of that stuff before he started writing. But they they have these two films, I think, that they really conceive of this. And it's interesting that now we can kind of we have so much more imaging. We know what things look like, you know, when it comes to filmmaking, like the aesthetics of it. Like we know what a lot of like we know what pretty much every planet that we want to looks like. Like we can guess what the terrain of it is. Like. At the time, I think uh, with with Arthur C. Clarke and Kubrick, they were kind of it was like a best guess. So as these things get as these things get um, brought down, I think the, the questions I think of of sci fi, like hard sci fi, get more specific. Like we start having questions about climate change. We start having questions about you know the un- like the universe and, and specific uh, areas of it, and the details get better. So it's it feels like two thousand one was kind of created um, conceptually as like you know the the best the best picture that we really uh could come up with at the time and they were they were amazing about um ideas that that you know later like they had the tablets that they're watching the news on in in the which you know decades before we have ipads or anything like that but oh yeah given given the enormous constraints uh that filmmakers were under in 1969 i think it's 1960 i think it's before that even 68 68 because because uh, 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 Space Oddity by David Bowie came out the following year. Yeah, 19, 1968. Okay. But I think they were working on it for like four years. They, like it was an so extremely yeah, long. So I was going to say that um, it's amazing how accurate it was, uh, given the enormous constraints that filmmakers were on under back then uh, yeah. compared to today. But you know what? That's going to be the, the case in 50 years from uh, from now as well. That the films, if we still have films, if they don't turn into some sort of combination between films and video games or something like who knows what's going to happen i think there will still always be narrative but who knows i guess i mixed Uh, up the two things the national film board of canada's 1960 animated short documentary universe and then another one was the 1964 uh new york world fair uh movie to the to the moon and beyond there we go nfb national film board great piece of canadian (laughs) socialism um public uh, film agency yep gave money Uh, to dentists to make softcore porn (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i was just gonna say that like in 50 years time we'll be looking back on ad astra and interstellar and gravity and saying oh it's so clunky i i don't think 2001 is clunky though that's why i think it's one of the most brilliant pieces of, of, of filmmaking like obviously there's yeah. big there's holes that we've uh that we've not the same way the dentist did maybe but holes we filled in um <laughs> since then but i i don't i think i think considering how much constraint they were under like 2001 is an amazing movie like the detail that they really crafted has yeah. proved like i mean i don't know there's a really there's a really good making of documentary where they kind of go into like a lot of the technology and a lot of it was being developed at the time some of it didn't necessarily like the video phones were something that bell was developing like there's all these interesting ideas of things that were being developed that um even uh the the really weirdly the the hal uh when he sings that song at the end of um when when he's being killed was an actual song the first uh the first quote unquote ai that they really really taught to like communicate that was the song that they taught it and uh arthur c clark knew that because he had connections at nasa and and so 
like even down to that detail is insane. So when he says like, oh, I was programmed to say like, here's a song that I was singing at the, at the dawn of conception. That's because that's because um, the first AI was like taught that song and they're li- literally like doing an homage to it that people aren't necessarily going to know like years later. I'll have to um, read up on that. Yeah. So uh, I guess, Andy, I'll, I'll ask you the same question though. What do you think is the least, the least, uh, the least scientifically accurate or something that you had a problem with that, because we, we talked about a lot of positive things with that Astra. So. Yeah, it's a small thing, but it, it's right at the very end whenever um, Brad Pitt climbs up on that rotor and then, uh, you know, basically surfs off the rotor and uses that as a shield. Um, I, I, I always, like, um, I understand inertia, like, you know, works as an object in motion, stays in motion, but he's crashing into objects at rest, which would slow his, uh, you know, his speed down. And at some point he might actually run out of inertia going through the belt of um, uh, Uranus like that. And, and, and so uh, uh, like, like I always like, like, but the, the, the rotor wasn't going that fast. So, you know, how much inertia could he actually have to surf over there and um, you know, get, get I, you know, I don't know. I have lots of questions about that. I'll have to, I'll have to f- uh, watch the, the rest of it tonight after I finish this. <laughs> yeah. It's just like a exactly small now, thing. So. And it just like, like bugged me because like everything was supposed to be so scientifically accurate and like he never seemed to slow down in the uh uh right. you know going through the belt so yeah. so I, I was just uh like hmm i guess i guess mine well, is someone that i mean okay uh, i'll have to yeah. think about it a bit like um he was using his jetpack a little bit but like you know again how much uh yeah how how much speed is that you know actually is giving he, he's in is he in a, i don't remember the uh, the the sort of sequence is he in a vacuum at that point yeah it was after he he cuts ties with uh uh you know uh Tommy Lee jones and uh well uh, if you're in a vacuum you're you're not going to slow down yes but if you're hitting rocks while you're flying through it yep true which is yep. why he had the uh, he 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 surfed he yep. basically surfed off the thing. I mean, you see him like undo the the bolts and then use the uh, inertia from the spinning of the uh, of the rotor to to come off of that. So so that's where he got his initial speed from. Which you know the rotor wasn't going that fast, but you know still he's got he's got some inertia, he's got some speed, and then he used the uh, the plate that he was surfing on as a shield so a rock wouldn't crack his uh, his visor. All right, I'll 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 have enough. It's it's a it's a watch. actually a great scene overall. It just you know well, at least it isn't like um when in uh was it Tomorrow Never Dies that um James Bond film where James Bond like surfs a tsunami. Yes. <laughs> also CIA prop. No. But, but <laughs> uh, uh, reminding me also <laughs> the other thing that the, the scene kind of jumped out at me it reminded me of the uh, end of Dark Star. If you uh, ever saw that one, so what a John Carpenter! But people really, uh, like people love it. Oh, it's uh, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. So so l- let me just tell you from my kid's point of view, um, I thought it was great. It's it's John Carpenter's first movie. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's flawed. I mean, like they had an alien that was just a beach ball with feet, and then it gets deflated, and like this guy starts crying over it. it <laughs> that's all I really remember. That and the surfing at the end. I well, I love John Carpenter. Great. Yeah, no, and it's uh the the guy who did the special effects is like um went on to have like a really big career in Hollywood too. Uh worked in I think it was Rob Botton, if I remember correctly, from Robocop. Okay. Uh, and Starship um, Troopers. I mean the thing, the thing is one of my favorite films. Yes. Love the thing. Have um, you seen the forest? Have you seen the uh, thing? Yeah. A and lot, the thing don't serve. We were gonna redo we were gonna redo we were gonna have a John Carpenter watch through on Ben's show. Uh 
and we i mean hopefully we still will at some point but um it was gonna be fun doing that um one i guess i guess my my answer to this question uh before before we just uh sign off of the the broadcast part of it is uh is the space baboons and the space pirates it was weird that that they never came back up again i mean we talked about that uh, before we were filming but like we were streaming but it's just it's just weird they never explained that and it was just kind of like quickly like it seemed like it seemed like the, the space baboons were a uh, homage to uh to uh planet of the apes or something where you know they were just like oh like these could conceivably become experiments that went terribly wrong and uh like colonize their own area and but then they're like they killed them and then they were like all right well we're not going to explain that and he's back on the ship and he's like yeah the captain died i don't know and then the other one is like the space pirates fighting over resources like it, like we never even really see them they're just kind of there shooting at them and it's like you're going to introduce the concept of space pirates and you're not going to give us a second to be like oh cool space pirates you're just gonna like it's it's done and it's like all right <laughs> yeah because shouldn't they have captured brad pitt and then they had to get ransom back and you know that would have been an exciting middle. Yeah, they arc. cut. They cut, and he's kind of like faster than them, and then they cut, and he's like, he's like, yeah, the guy like passed. It's like, all right, like you're just gonna gloss over the whole, all of this. Yeah, it wasn't a perfect film. By any, I don't even I don't know if I would even say it was a great film. I think it was a very profound film. Yeah. Um. I um. I loved the cinematography. I thought uh, Hoytman, Hoytner, um, Hoytman, however you pronounce his name, uh, this, it was amazing. Um, this high realist um, uh, lighting. And I thought the acting was really good. I thought, you know, Brad Pitt was fantastic. Really, really good. This, sir, how do you portray a uh, basically unemotional uh, figure that doesn't just look like you're not acting? And he does it really yeah. well. He's there's so many aspects of it that I really I thought the themes were fantastic. The music by uh, Max Richter, amazing score. Um, but uh, the whole um, is uh, less than the sum of its parts. It's um, doesn't yeah, it seems like come a together. great great attempt, mediocre landing. Is yeah, what I, is yeah. what I'd say. Andy, how do you? Uh, do you have a do you have a final uh, analysis like not like whatever concluding thought about it? Yeah, it, it just seemed like uh, they were trying to build a lived-in world, and in doing that, it opened up so many other boxes. Where where going back to uh, the example of of Outland, Outland, you know, didn't didn't try to bring in so many different other things. It focused on the, the one story, but it also felt lived in because everything felt worn out um, much the same way kind of Star, you know, one of the great things about the set design of Star Wars, the original, uh, you know, was was that was that lived in feel to it. Uh, and um, I don't necessarily think the movie felt lived in, but they were trying to do that with like space pirates and space monkeys. Uh, yeah. and, and I don't think that that's space quite lions works. and space tigers and space bears. Oh my! Oh my. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm gonna cut the the streaming part here. We can keep talking um, afterwards if you want. But uh, you know, I think that it's hard to make people pay attention for more than like an hour and a half. Yeah. Uh, so. All right, this was this was great, and Lee, I hope you'll come back as our like sci one of our sci-fi correspondents. Um, sci-fi correspondent, but, sure. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, because I, I want to watch more sci. Like, I feel like I haven't watched that many sci-fi movies. Like, I want to keep doing. Well, oh, I got a laundry list for you, bro. Yeah, I know you do. All right, so uh, left is best. <laughs>
Thank <laughs> you.